Southcliff Podcast. We're glad you've joined us. Now, here's Senior Pastor Dr. Carol Marr with this week's sermon. Well, have you been to a department store lately? Walmart, Target. Um, people are getting ready for Christmas. Have you noticed? They started around Halloween, I think, getting ready for Christmas. In fact, if you turn on the news, the news tells you that you need to be getting ready for Christmas because there's a supply chain problem and and if you're planning on getting uh, 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 that, that right gift to someone and get it shipped to them, you may be already too late or behind the curve. We need to be getting ready for Christmas. Well, I just got to thinking about that for a moment. And there's another holiday between now and Christmas. And, um, and I just kind of have a hard time getting ready for Christmas when we hadn't really talked about Thanksgiving. So what I want to do in our time together today is I, I want to talk to you about getting ready for Thanksgiving. You see, a lot of times when we talk about getting ready for Thanksgiving, we, we think in light of our shopping list and the foods that we're going to eat and when everybody's going to come together. We've already started that process at our house. You know, when are the kids going to come over and, you know, am I going to fry a turkey? All of those kinds of things that are a part of our traditional experience on Thanksgiving. But I want to talk to you about something a little deeper than that. Not just getting ready for that meal on Thanksgiving, but, but, but getting ready for Thanksgiving. And the passage of Scripture that I want to look at in our time together today is, is a text that really is... Um, I think a passage that offers to us a plan or a pathway to victory. Now, I don't know if that sounds interesting to you, um, but I, I'm, I'm open to a path toward victory, a plan for success. And I think we find it in, in an obscure place and a part of a command, really, that Paul gives to the church that, that if we unpack it, can kind of create a change within our own heart. So if you have your Bible, look with me, if you will, to 1 Thessalonians. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, coming to the end of this letter that Paul writes to the church at Thessalonica, he offers these words to all of us who are believers and certainly to the church. So 1 Thessalonians, so if you'll just, Matthew, Mark, Luke, keep going to the left toward the end of your Bible, the back of your Bible, you'll find 1 Thessalonians. And I want to read several verses. Look with me, if you will, at chapter 5, verse 16, down through verse 18. These verses at first seem if they are commands like an impossible command, really. Because look at what he says. Rejoice always. You've got to be kidding. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. I have a hard time remembering to pray once a day. Sometimes I forget to pray, and you're telling me I'm to pray without ceasing? 
I've got a job. I've got things to do. That's ridiculous. Rejoice always. Pray without ceasing. And then we get to the crescendo. In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. This is God's will for you. You, you, you want to seek God's will? You want to know what God's will is for your life? In everything, give thanks. That just kind of rubs us the wrong way if we stop long enough to look at it. If it is indeed a command that is offered and, and this is God's will for my life, this is an impossible will. But what I want to do in our time together today is see how it works out in reality and discover that maybe it's not as impossible as it first seems. And to do that, I want to look at two things that I think kind of capture the essence of this trilogy of command that he gives us. First of all, I, I want to recognize with you today that there's a declaration here. We might have even called it a directive, a command, but, but the declaration that he offers is rejoice always, pray without ceasing. And then that final one that I want to focus our attention on as we get ready for Thanksgiving, in everything, give thanks. Now, how do we do that? Well, let's talk about it for a moment. The declaration in everything give thanks, the key word in that five-word phrase is in, in everything. Notice he didn't say um, because of everything give thanks. We, we can't do that, can we? He didn't even say in this particular text, for everything, give thanks. He says, in everything, give thanks. Now, now the word in literally carries the idea of within a, a place, within the limit of some place. He really is ultimately saying this, and perhaps this makes sense. I, I can't be thankful for tragedy but I, I can be thankful in tragedy. I, I, I can't be thankful for the death of someone that I love, but, but I can be thankful in the midst of death. I can't be thankful because of pain, but I can be thankful in my pain. I, I can't be thankful because of the loss of a job, but but I can, in the midst of that experience, I can't be thankful for heartache, but I can be thankful in heartache. It seems impossible until you, until you recognize that this is something we do more often than we think, and it is for us the way we find victory in tragedy. I mean, I was thinking about this, and I realized we see this all the time. Whenever the news covers a tragic event in our country, 
There's a tornado that comes through and destroys a neighborhood. And suddenly there's a camera in front of a person who's standing in front of what used to be their house. And they are looking at the ruins. Everything they own is gone. And what do they say to the camera? But we're thankful. We're alive. We all got out somehow. And that stuff can be replaced, but our lives can never be replaced. And, and in the midst of great loss, we're thankful. You can go to South Louisiana after a hurricane, the floods, and the floodwaters come, and people's lives have been devastated, and everything they own is gone, and they stand in front of a house full of mud that, that, that wonder if it can ever even be put back together, and they say, but we're thankful we're alive. You can go to the, to the ruins of forest fires in California and see entire neighborhoods that have gone up in an inferno and everything lost and someone standing with tears in their eyes in front of that which they have worked all their life for and they're still able to say, but we're thankful we're alive without even realizing it. There is something deep in us that knows thanksgiving is indeed an attitude that enables us to survive and even thrive in the midst of difficult experiences. There's, there's a principle here that we are to live by. Develop a lifestyle of thanksgiving. That's what Paul is saying. But the question that we have is, how do I do that? And I really think it's these directives, as the three of them come together, that we begin to understand they're connected. How is it that, that I can rejoice always? How is it that I can, can be thankful in everything? Well, he begins by saying, rejoice always. You need to have this attitude of rejoicing. What's really interesting is Paul he focuses on something deeper than just happiness. We're so focused on happiness and the pursuit of happiness. And even as one of the things that we think are so basic to who we are, even as a nation, is that we have a right to the pursuit of happiness. And, and, and we long for happiness. And yet all of us seem to recognize that happiness is so elusive. It's here one moment and gone the next. Happiness is always connected to happenstance. Happiness is connected to the things that happen to me. And if good things happen to me, I am happy. If bad things happen to me, I am sad. And because good things don't always happen to me, we all struggle in this thing of happiness. And so Paul says, you know what? Happiness isn't going to get you through life. That's not going to put you on the path of victory. You need something bigger than that, stronger than that, more solid than that. This is what I'm going to tell you to do. Don't, don't, don't be happy always. You can't do that. This is what I want you to be joyful always. Joy. Rejoice always. Now, the word rejoice literally means to return to the source of your joy. Now, I want you to say that with me so that you know what rejoice means, okay? means to return to the source of your joy. So say that with me. Return to the source of your joy. What Paul is saying is that our joy is not grounded in the things that happen to us. Our joy is in heaven. 
Our joy is in the person of God, a God that loves us and provides for us forgiveness and an opportunity to begin life over again, a God that knows us better than we know ourselves and loves us and cares for us and is involved in our life. Therein is our joy. And to return to the source of our joy is to return to a focus on God. And as I'm focused on him, I find strength. In fact, the Bible says that the joy of the Lord is my strength. The way that I am strong and able to handle the challenges of life is that I am rejoicing always. It doesn't mean I'm always happy and I'm always excited and I'm always laughing and I'm always making light of things. It means that my focus, my attention is on a God that is bigger than anything I confront in life. And when I know that, and I focus on that and life falls apart and the rug is pulled out from under me and, and all of a sudden I'm not devastated by the things that happen. It affects me and I'm impacted by it, but I'm not devastated by it because I know God's bigger than that. Rejoice always, even in the bad times, even in the hard times, even in the difficult times. You keep your eyes focused on God. There is an eternal purpose that's bigger than what you're walking through. But not only does he tell us that, he also says, pray without ceasing. Now, I meant it a moment ago, and I said, are you serious? We forget sometimes to pray all day long. There are times in your life you come to the end of the day, and you think, wow, I didn't, man, I didn't even pray today. And he's saying to me that I need to pray all the time? We walked through a sermon series on prayer some time ago, and I, I, I told you that, that, that the way I kind of apply this in my own life is when I pray in the morning, I never say amen. You see, we have a tendency to get up in the morning and pray, and, and, and we'll say amen as if we're done. It's finished. It's over. I've marked that off. I've gotten that taken care of, and now I can go ahead and move throughout my day. And, and I have learned for myself, if I don't say amen, it is a reminder to me that the prayer's not done. This is to be a conversation that I'm to have with God all day long. To pray without ceasing doesn't mean that I kneel before him with my hands clapped and I pray or I go to a monastery somewhere and I'm not involved in life. To pray without ceasing means that I'm ever aware that he is present. He's, he's right here. He never goes away. And I'm always aware of his nearness. And so we talk. He's right here. So I'm not going to ignore him. He's everywhere I am. So I talk to him about everything that's going on in my life. And, and so throughout the course of the day, I'll see something exciting and say, God, did you see that? And then kind of laugh to say, well, of course you did. But that was pretty cool. To bring him into the conversation, literally to pray without ceasing means to acknowledge his presence. But it also means that acknowledge my need for him, that I always acknowledge that I can't make it through the day without him. You see, you know what I've discovered? In, in fact, there's, there's kind of some opposite things that happened here. I've discovered that we sometimes find it easy to be thankful when things are going good and not when things are going bad. And, and the opposite is true for prayer. I've discovered it's easier to pray when things are going bad than it is to pray when things are going good right? I mean, when life's falling apart, we pray. When things happen, we pray. But what does he say? I want you to pray all the time, not just in the bad times, but in the good too. And I want you to be thankful all the time, not just 
in the good times, but in the bad also. And I want you to rejoice all the time. Not, not just when things are going your way, but all the time. Because that's what's going to put you on a path that will bring victory. That's what's going to put you in a place where he says, you will fulfill the will of God. How do I I have an attitude of gratitude? How, How do I come to a place where I am thankful in everything? Well, I... I rejoice always. I return to the source of my joy. I pray without ceasing. I, I, I'm in communication and contact with God and the challenges that I face. And, and then I am able to maintain a perspective on life that is different. It enables me to in everything give thanks. And you know what's fun about this text? He even tells us why. He commands us to do it. Because this is God's will for you. You see, God wants good for you. God wants you to enjoy life and experience victory. And some of us are saying, well, if God wants me to enjoy life and experience victory, why are all the difficulties that I face? Why has life gone south? Why has God allowed the bad stuff to come into my life? God wants us to walk a path of victory. But the path of victory doesn't just contain good things. It also allows us to encounter hard things. But this puts me in a place where I can experience God's blessing. So if the command is there and the how and the why is there, then then what do we need to do? Well, the second thing that I want you to notice is that we've got to make a decision. I really think that what he is challenging us to in the text before us boils down to an effort on our part. Being thankful in the midst of everything, in every situation, any occasion, listen, is a choice. And you're the only one that can make that choice. Nobody else can do it for you. Nobody else can choose it for you. No one else, pastor can't do it for you. Mom, dad can't do it for you. Husband can't do it for you. Brother, sister can't. This is something you have to do. That's why this this charge that is offered here is to all of us. It's a decision that we have to make. It's a daily attitude that we need to embrace. This is a personal directive. Only you can do it. Nobody else. This is just for you. It's a decision that we make that enables us to come to a place where, listen to me, where life's worth living. Sometimes we get to the point where we feel like life's not worth living anymore. I don't even want to live. I don't care. I hate what I'm going through. It's because you're focused in the wrong place. You can make a decision that changes things in that perspective. In fact, it's a decision that every hero in the Bible that we hold up as an example has made. 
Now, I really hadn't looked at every person of the Bible, but a cursory look as I'm thinking through this reveals to me that just about everybody in the Bible had that attitude. I mean, go all the way back to Job. Job is the oldest book in your Bible. We, Genesis is the first one there, and we often think it's, but Job is the oldest book written in the scripture collection. You remember Job was the guy who, who won the battle that he didn't even know he was involved in, where Satan came and spoke to God and, and, and God says, have you considered my, where have you come from? And he says, well, I've just been kind of roaming around the earth seeking whom I might devour and, and destroy. And he said, well, have you considered Job? He's an upright man and righteous. And Satan said, well, of course he is. Man, you built a hedge around him. You've given him everything he's ever wanted and everything good in life. I mean, why wouldn't he be happy? Why wouldn't he rejoice? He's got it made. He's the guy that we all want to be like, right? And God says, well, I think he's deeper than that. And I'm going to give you permission. You want to take all that stuff away from him? Take it away and see if he denies me. And systematically, Satan began to destroy Job's life. You know the story. He takes everything away from him. His family, his possessions, and ultimately his health. And, and there comes a point in time where all of his friends have left him. His wife literally says to him, curse God and die. You have done something so horrible that God is against you. Just curse God and die. And you know what? In all of that, Job refused. And he understood something that we need to understand. This is what Job says. You know what I've discovered in life? Life has good and bad. Life doesn't just have good, and it doesn't have just bad. Every person on the planet experiences good and bad. And am I to praise God and thank him for all the good and then curse God and be angry because things are bad? No, I'm not going to do that. I will never turn my back on God in those situations. It was an attitude of his heart that enabled him to hang on, to say, no, I'm, I'm going to praise God in the good and I'm going to praise him in the bad. And I don't understand everything that's going on, but I do understand that there's good and bad in life. You remember Joseph? The story of Joseph, my goodness, hated by his brothers, favored by his father. His brothers concoct a plan where they take him off and literally sell him into slavery. He ends up a slave to a man. I mean, that would have been enough to want to give up and be angry and bitter. But, but what does Joseph do? He, he just does the best he can in the situation he's in. And he performs so well. And gives so much good service to his master that he begins to, 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 to climb the ladder in his master's household and to the point where he becomes head over all of the household. And at the end of that time, as he is head over the whole estate, no longer really a, a slave, but has others under him trusted completely by his master, his master's wife comes on to him, tries to seduce him and he made the right decision to say, no, I'm not going to do that. that. That would dishonor my master who's entrusted everything to me and would dishonor my God. And you remember the woman got so angry at him that she falsely accuses him of coming on to her, comes to her husband, accuses him, and has Joseph thrown into prison. And he is thrown into prison and forgotten. Time passes. Another person in the prison has a dream and Joseph is able to interpret the dream, 
tells him that you're going to be able to get out and hey, when you do, would you remember me and remember that I'm the guy that helped you and would you tell others on the other side so that I can be remembered, I've been forgotten here. And, and even in that moment, the guy gets out and forgets all about Joseph. And he's stuck there. In years past, anybody else would have been angry and bitter and frustrated because life is bad and not worth living. But not Joseph. Somehow he recognizes life involves good and bad and continues with an attitude of gratitude and a heart that is right toward God. And eventually the king has a dream. Nobody can interpret it. And the word comes back that there is a man in prison named Joseph who can interpret dreams. And he interprets the dream. He brings him out of prison. He interprets the dream. And, and then the, and it was that there's a famine coming. You got to need to prepare. And, and he said, you know what? You seem to know more about that than anybody else. I'm going to put you in charge of preparing. And so Joseph is elevated to a position right under Pharaoh. He is, he is nobody greater than him except Pharaoh himself in the land of Egypt. The famine does come so intense that it impacts his homeland and his father and his brothers and they're without food. And the father says, you need to go to Egypt to get food for us. You remember? And so they come to Egypt and who do they have to come before to get the food? But Joseph, they were thinking he was long gone and dead. They didn't recognize him and his Egyptian garb and certainly weren't expecting to see him alive, but he knew exactly who they were when he saw them. Now he's in the position that he can do something about it. He could have them all killed. He could kill them himself if he wants to, but he doesn't. He shows mercy. And at the end of the story, when he reveals himself to them, they are so afraid because they know what they had done to him, thinking that he would kill them. And then that wonderful phrase that kind of summarizes the entire story. You remember the phrase if you've grown up in church? What did Joseph say? What you intended for evil, God intended for good. I think about David having sinned with Bathsheba and had a child. After the baby was born, it gets sick. It looks like it's going to die and David begins to pray and fast. He wouldn't eat. He wouldn't sleep. His servants were worried about him and they were coming to him saying, David, you need to eat. No, you need to sleep. No. All he would do is pray. And they were worried about him. They said, man, if he is in this kind of shape with a baby sick, what in the world is he going to do when this baby dies? And sure enough, the baby dies. And the servants are standing out in the hallway saying, what are we going to do? I'm not going to tell David the baby's dead. Man, I don't think, I don't, I don't know if the king can survive that. Look at the way he has responded. And David sees them and he says to them, hey, is the child dead? And they said, yes. And he does what they never expected him to do. He asks for food and they bring him food and he eats and he takes a shower and he puts on fresh clothes and he goes and he worships. And they come to him later and say, we don't understand when the baby was, was, was sick, you were, you, you, but when, it, when the baby died, it was as if everything's okay. What in the world's going on? And you remember what David said? When the baby was sick, I prayed and I sought the heart and mind of God because who knows, maybe God would answer my prayer and restore him to life. But now that the child is dead, I cannot bring him back, but I can go to him. And the hope of his heart was restored even in the bad times. Remember the story of Daniel and the lion's den <laughs> taken away from his homeland into another country. He could have given up, he could have become bitter, he could have become angry, but no, he didn't. He had an attitude of gratitude. 
And all of a sudden he began to excel and he was brought to a position of authority over everybody else so much so that the people under him were jealous and they said, we want to get him. How can we get him? And they couldn't find any way to get him. They said, if we're going to trip him up, the only way we can is in his relationship with God. He prays every day. So let's go to the king and let's talk him into making a decree that for a certain amount of time, the only prayers offered would be to him and that he would be the one worshiped. So they went to the king, got an audience with him, charmed him, and he made the decree and the law. They knew they had Daniel now. And Daniel, the Bible says, when he heard that the king had signed the decree, he knew it was law. He did the same thing he always did. He went to the upper room, faced Jerusalem, opened the window, and bowed down and began to pray to God. And his enemy said, we got him. And they came to the king and said, you know how you signed the decree? that only during this period of time are we to worship you and that anybody that doesn't needs to be thrown into the lion's den. Well, guess what? Daniel, Daniel. And you know what the Bible says in Daniel chapter 6, verse 10? It says he knelt down as he always had and he prayed and gave thanks to God. In everything, give thanks. In everything, give thanks. Here's the challenge. Anyone can be thankful in the good times. But how about the tough times? I want to tell you the story of a lady by the name of Sandra. Sandra... Life was good. She married her childhood sweetheart. They loved each other. That great job was able to buy their dream house. And the only thing that could make it better was about to happen. She was going to give birth to a baby son. Five months into the pregnancy, Tragedy strikes. She's in an automobile accident that changes everything. She loses the baby. Devastated, working through grief and anger and resentment and bitterness. She continued to go to church. She continued to reach out, but she was losing ground. She didn't even know why or how she ended up being the person that was picked to go to the florist to get the arrangement for Sunday morning Thanksgiving service. But it was her job. As she was driving to the florist, she was thinking to herself, Thanksgiving. Like, what do I have to be thankful for? Thankful that the truck driver that ran into me walked away without a scratch. Thankful that the the airbag saved my life but took the life of my son. What do I have to be grateful for? She walked into the florist and the bell rings on the door and the lady behind the counter said, can I help you? And she said, well, I, I need a Thanksgiving arrangement. Great. 
What kind of arrangement do you want? Do you want, um, do you want an arrangement that says Thanksgiving or do you just want our Thanksgiving special? And Sandra said, I don't care. I'm just here to pick up an arrangement. Honestly, this has been the worst year of my life. And the florist said, you know, I think I've got the perfect arrangement for you. She went to the back and came out a few moments later with some roses like this and some scissors. And she began to cut the... And Sandra said, whoa, 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 what are you doing? She said, I'm making your arrangement. She said, you're ruining it. She said, no, I'm good. Well, wait, wait a minute. You don't expect me to pay for that, do you? Well, not unless you want to. But hear me out. A few years ago, I lost my husband. And I was forced to face my first holiday without him. No children, no husband, no family nearby. I was in such a financial bind, I didn't even have the money to get a ticket to go to be where family was. And Sandra said, well, what did you do? She said, well... I learned to thank God for the thorns. Thank God for the thorns? Yeah. You see, I had always been able to thank him for the flowers. I was always good to thank God for the good times. And you know what? I never once questioned God why good things happened to me. But when the bad things happened, oh, I asked the questions then. Took me a while, but I learned that God is at work even in the dark times of my life. And I discovered that it's actually the thorns that make the roses more precious. After all, when Jesus died on the cross, he wore a crown of thorns for us. Sandra sat there for a moment. Tears began to well up in her eyes. And for the first time, the grip of anger and the grip of bitterness began to loosen just a little bit. And she said, I think I'll take those. How much do I owe you? And the floor said, no, the first arrangement's on the house. The only thing I ask is that you let him heal your heart. When she got home with this beautiful arrangement, she noticed for the first time that there was a note attached. 
And the note said, my God, I've never thanked you for my thorns. I've thanked you a thousand times for my roses, but never once for my thorns. Teach me the glory of the cross I bear. Teach me the value of my thorns. Show me that I have climbed closer to you along the path of pain. Show me that through my tears, the colors of your rainbow shine much more brilliant. Anyone can be thankful in the good times. But how about the tough times? In everything, give thanks. For this is God's will for you. Would you bow your head with me? I just somehow sense that this message was not just for me today. That God has arranged for you to be here to hear it because there are some of you that are like Sandra and your heart is bitter and angry. You think that the key to success in life is to be happy. You have forgotten that for every human being on the planet, there's good and there's bad. Happiness is a fleeting, unpredictable emotion. But we can have joy. And we can rejoice as we return to the source of our joy. And we can pray without ceasing, acknowledging that he never leaves us. He's always with us. And we can, in his power, be thankful in everything. So I'm going to let you sit there and think for a moment as we have music played, and it might be that in this moment you need to say, God, I've never thanked you for the thorns. And the thorns have made me bitter and angry. And today, I'm going to let go of that. And it may be that you just need somebody to pray with you. You know, sometimes we get so caught up in our own fights that we can't even let go ourselves. And I'll be here if you need somebody to pray with you. So let God speak to you in this moment as we have opportunity. From everyone at Southcliff Church, thank you for joining us today. If you would like more information about Southcliff Church, please go to southcliff.com to share a testimony of how God has encouraged you through this ministry. Send an email to scpodcast at southcliff.com. That's scpodcast at southcliff.com. Click the Give button on our webpage to discover how this ministry is supported. Financial gifts help accomplish the mission God has given us.